I was a little concerned yesterday. We were taking out a lot of flowers, but lo and behold, all you men have them on your shirts, so we will be fine. I do have to confess, um, when Gary started showing up with this is like her new, really vocalized fashion trend, I was like, it'll be fine. And then it started to rub off on the like AARP men, uh, and so I was still like okay with it. But I generally like, I don't know if he knows this, but I generally look to take style tips from Justin Erickson, and then he shows up with this pineapple shirt on. No, that's, that's very concerning to me. Like, I, I don't know what to do now, because I also have half of me that tells me oftentimes that I should never get one of those shirts. So, uh, Whitney and I will have to have a discussion later that'll start with. But Justin has one, and we'll see where that goes. So I'm just, just saying. All right, hey, uh, you got a Bible. Let's go to Titus chapter 3. As you're uh, turning there, let me kind of catch you up on some logistical things here as a church body. Uh, we had, if you were not a part of it, last Wednesday, uh, a meeting that was really kind of focused on going into the fall and into the winter, what we wanted to do uh, as a church in terms of kind of logistics and serving and growth opportunities. And, and we really uh, sort, of, sort of believe practically or logistically that it's helpful uh, for you to kind of have a pathway into what it looks like to get more involved in the context of the church, what it looks like to grow in your spirituality. We know that you can't actually dictate those things legalistically. The Bible isn't in its nature a rule book. It's a love story about Christ and his redemption. And so spiritual maturity looks differently for everyone. Uh, and yet, as a church, we kind of like to have uh, some good pathways to say, okay, if you're maturing in your relationship with the Lord, it's likely that you're going to step into some context where you serve way within the church body. Uh, if you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, it is likely that you're going to step into some smaller community of believers where you can really study the scriptures together and learn and grow in your relationship with the Lord. And so we wanted to really make sure that structurally, systematically, we have some ways for you to do that. And so uh, we laid out some different areas where you could serve, whether that's in the nursery or the children's community uh, or in our guest services or, or some of the logistics and behind the scenes stuff that we're doing here on a weekly basis. And then we talked about our growth communities and just encouraged you. Uh, so a couple follow-ups with that. Uh, in the next couple weeks, uh, on Sunday mornings, we're going to have like a list of all of the potential communities, growth communities as a church that we're putting out in this fall uh, and who the leaders are. And then I think what we're going to try to do is embarrass those leaders just a little bit, make them stand up so you can like name and face together uh, so that you could say, you know what, if I haven't gotten involved in a community yet, this would be a good place for me to jump in. And then you can connect with that leader and say, hey, what time? Uh, what does that look like? You know, should I bring cookies? or are you going to have the cookies? Where are the cookies going to be? That's the important question. And then like in that, uh, help you get further connected. The second thing uh, is our nursery workers uh, are now, we, we kind of went into Wednesday night. This is, I think this is cool. Praise the Lord for this. And uh, you guys, I love you guys. You're, you're such a joy. Uh, we said in order for us to really have a nursery that was, effective 
at caring for people the way we desire to care for people uh, and not burn out our volunteers, uh, we needed somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 people to work that nursery so that when you have a turn to work the nursery, you only have that turn every five, six weeks rather than like calling on you every other week and saying, hey, can you work the nursery? Can you cover the nursery? Can you cover the nursery? Because that gets, that gets exhausting, right? Like I have kids, they're exhausting. And so in a good way sometimes, sometimes. And, and so in that, uh, we said we want like 20 people and we'll see what happens. Uh, if I'm being completely honest with you, I did not expect to get 20 people. Uh, I thought we would have to kind of pull you and beg you and prod you a little bit and, you know, kind of hit you with it a little bit more. Uh, that's not the case. We, we had about 20 people sign up and, and here and ready to serve in the nursery. And so in the next week or two, you're going to get an email uh, from Planning Center. As Dave mentioned, like, make sure you kind of pay attention. If you, don't, if you sign up, you don't get an email. Let one of us know, because chances are it got lost in some spam folder. Uh, but in that, it'll have some instructions about how we do nursery, things that we're doing with it. If you're uh, somebody who's already in the nursery, it'll have uh, a request for you to kind of black out what dates you know you aren't going to be around for. Uh, and then it'll begin from there to put together a schedule, hopefully for at least a couple months in advance, so you can have an idea of when you're going to serve. All right? So those are the housekeeping things. Let's... Uh, Let's note those and then move forward from there. I want to get into the last week that we'll spend in the book of Titus. And then uh, as we enter into the fall, I'm, I'm really excited. We're going to begin a rather long series uh, working through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And, uh, which the, the reason I'm so excited about that is because if you know a little bit about that church, uh, they are a complete disastrous mess. The letter is a really strong, rebuking letter. And so we get to talk about all of the things that uh, look awry within the church life, and, and in doing so, uh, rejoice in some spots and challenge one another in some spots as well, and all the while rest in the comfort that uh, this is a church not all that different 2,000 years ago as our church might look today in that uh, it's, it's always messy. Sanctification has this way of being messy, and sin has this way of invading, and, and we're meant to be a people that do battle with that. But in the meantime, uh, what we've said over the last couple weeks is that Titus gives us this really unique opportunity to look at what a healthy church is meant to be. Because uh, if you know a little bit about your New Testament, you know that Paul is the apostle who writes 13 different letters in the New Testament. He writes to a broad variety of churches. Uh, he has basically spent his adult life sort of traveling through the known world and stopping from city to city in order to write or, or in order to preach the gospel and begin plant churches in those cities. And then frequently what his general pattern of behavior was, was to stay in those cities, proclaim the gospel until he got run out of those cities. And then as he was being pushed along, he would leave pastors or elders to take care of, shepherd that church while he continued on to the next place to plant another church by the work of the Lord. And so in that, one of these men is named Titus. Titus was a disciple of Paul's. In fact, he spent a good amount of time with Paul before being left island of Crete to ha handle, pastor, shepherd the church there. 
And so we said, as Paul writes specifically to Titus, his disciple, that this would give us some really tangible, really practical, uh, really straightforward instruction on what the church was meant to look like then, and then by extension, we can pull that out 2,000 years later and go, these are patterns, these are things fundamental to what we ought to be like as a church in church health. And so uh, we began a couple weeks ago and said a healthy church starts with a healthy understanding of leadership, that from the top that the church would be healthy, and noted that the healthy church in leadership recognizes that Christ is its headship, and then from there, Paul, or Paul describes to Titus kind of a model of elders that would be in the leadership role of the church. A couple of things we noted, that they were men who were above reproach, uh, men who were sensible, men who were not pugnacious, that means not, not uh, quick to argue about every little thing, uh, but rather that they were self-controlled and that there was a plurality of them, that there were more than one kind of working together for the sake of the church going forward. And so we said a healthy church would have a healthy model of leadership, things, people that would be examples. And then out of that, we said, okay, a, a church would be Uh, Something that has healthy membership or healthy love for one another. And so we looked all through Titus 2 and we uh, last week kind of dealt with some, if, if we're just being honest, some rather controversial passages in the scripture. If you kind of look at the social tides of culture and where they're at right now. Titus chapter 2 is one of the most like at odds with the current kind of flow of progressive culture in all of the New Testament. And so said some relatively controversial things. And one of the reasons is because Paul just segregates it out into categories. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And there's kind of some tweaks to the things that he advises among each of those groups. And so uh, we said that ultimately when all of that begins to kind of boil itself down, you see these repeating trends that a church is a church that really cares for one another, loves one another, and sees in whatever stage of life or whatever role we might be in that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to love and care for others, that we would be somebody who are living sensible, self-controlled lives with the hope that it would be an encouragement across the aisles, right? Encouragement to one another as the body of Christ. And then finally, um, what we said is, is the way that Paul's going to kind of finish up is with this question, is how does, how does the healthy church interact with the world around us? So, so what does the healthy church look like as it engages into the community that it's a part of? Because um, here, here's why. We, when we began this series, I said generally speaking, if we ask this question, and, and the series kind of took its, its flavor from a question we got on a Wednesday night just before we started this, is what makes a healthy church? I said, you know, the, the thing about that is, I think most of us would generally want to answer that question based on our unhealthy experiences in the church. Amen? You, you get what I'm saying? Talkative bunch. Come on, come on. Here's, here's what I mean. Uh, generally speaking, if you've been a part of church dynamic or church culture for some period of time, uh, you've likely encountered some type of problematic view of church leadership, 
uh, you've probably encountered some type of pain or uh, dissatisfaction with the way church membership connected with one another. So you were either hurt by church or you were hurt by church members, or uh, you've probably been some type of disapproving or dissatisfaction with the way that the church approaches the world around us. So, so the way that the church engages in ministry, and you go, ah, it's just not right, or they just, I just don't like the way that they went about doing this, or this was the wrong thing, and, and, and ultimately, a couple things. One, uh, if you haven't been here a long time, Trust me that there will be those things here. Thank you. Yeah, that one. Oh, no problem saying amen. Thanks, Ed. Yeah. The leadership's going to fail you, right? Like the leadership's not going to live up to being above reproach in all ways, shapes, and forms. And Tom's, the membership is going to fail you. Even, even when we're trying to say nice things, sometimes we don't. I remember just this morning some old person calling another person old, right? Like every once in a while, it just happens, right? And so even when we're being kind to one another, right, we just have this way of kind of, oops, and, and so in that, not only is that going to be the case, also there's going to be a letdown as you engage with the community. You go, ah, oh, man, that's not what I would have liked to see the church do in its ministry. And so that's constantly going to be the case. And so Paul's encouragement to Titus, encouragement to us, is that we would press into that. We would continue to be refining in patience as we walk forward in that. And in it, his answer to what a healthy church does as it interacts with the world around us is rather simple. We're going to see this phrase again and again and again as he finishes the letter in Titus. Go with me. Titus chapter 2 will pick up for the sense of context in verse 11 where we left off last week. And I want you to see this. Titus 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. From every lawless deed, and to purify himself, a people for his own possession. And now, I want to summarize it this way. Pay attention to this phrase right here. What does a church look like when it interacts with the world around us? He says, it would be zealous for good deeds. That phrase is going to come again and again and again. We'll look at some ways that it shows up in just a second. That a church that has a healthy relationship with the world it exists in is collected a people who are zealous or engage in good deeds. That we would be a people who are working good things for the glory of God, who are engaging themselves in good deeds. And so in other words, a healthy church is not a church whose model kind of finds itself uh, in one of two ditches. What? Either, either one, uh, there are churches who see the world. And I think, this, I think this grows in American culture right now. I think we're seeing this more and more frequently that it just appears that the tides of culture uh, and, and the tides of media and the tides of uh, Americanism as a whole kind of uh, find themselves more and more opposed to 
orthodox Christianity, uh, more and more interested in kind of misdiagnosing, misinterpreting what Christianity is. And so out of that really uh, sets us against the world. You feel how sometimes you just feel like the world is uh, antagonistic towards Christ and his message. Amen? You feel that? And, and I think that the natural, the natural tendency when that is the case is to want to kind of fight back, right? And so uh, one of the things that we can do in the world around us, especially as the world sort of moves away from this Christendom that the United States had enjoyed for such a long period of time and into a more like hostile relationship towards Christianity is go, well, to heck with them, we're going to get them. Right? And, and really, if we're, we're being honest, maybe in some of our darker thoughts, you think, well, you know, you're going to burn one day. You wouldn't say that out loud, just your pastor does. Right? But, but in that, right, we, we have this natural tendency to feel some antagonism towards a world that doesn't love Christ, towards people who don't know Christ. And, the, and then I think that the other tendency, right, uh, away from that is is. Kind of, kind of the opposite, but really when you think about it enough, it's exactly the same, is, is that we would go, well, I just, I just want to isolate altogether. I don't want to deal with anybody from the world. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to have to talk to anybody who's not a Christian. I don't want to have to engage those people. I just, I just want to live peaceably and isolated from everything. Why would I need to engage the world around me? Why don't I just let it burn and I can do my thing? And, and so the natural tendency, I think, of us in our fleshly nature, in our kind of antagonistic nature, is those who are outside of Christ, the community around us, those that we're called to be ambassadors towards, end up being uh, somebody that we're kind of setting ourselves against, hostile to, or really just trying to ignore with all of our lives and go, man, it's much more peaceful for me if I just don't even deal with these people and I can just collective environments. And so uh, Paul's encouragement to Titus is not that. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite of that. It's, it's walking right between those two uh, extremes and going, listen, what does a healthy church look like? A healthy church looks like a place that engages itself in good deeds for the sake of the world around us. And, and he's going to say specifically that this comes from your relationship with Christ. So let's, let's just note this. Watch how he continues in chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, here it is again, for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For now, look at, look at what he does here. And you're going to notice, if you start reading the New Testament, and you see this in Paul's writings a lot, that he's going to give you some instructions, and then he's going to go, oh yeah, don't forget why. Right? Because we could go, oh man, here's the list of things that I've got to do, and so I don't like it, but I better go work in the world. Now, here's, here's what Paul says. Here's why. For or because... We were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Here's, here's why you engage in good deeds. Because, because we were once foolish. We were once disobedient. We were once deceived and enslaved that you once looked just like those who don't know Christ and it wasn't simply because you didn't want it but you were also enslaved to sin deceived by the world and so out of this we see that with a measure of humility and understand that in that here's what the gospel is when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis, now there's that word again, of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in... I didn't warn you first. Let's try it again. So that those... You're going to say it. So I don't have to, okay? Now we got the rule. Okay, so, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Here's, here's what Paul's saying. Because, because you and I were once foolish, because you and I were once ignorant to the gospel, because you and I were once enslaved in sin and death, and God, in His mercy, made us alive. That's what that word regenerated. Brought us from death to life through Jesus Christ. Those of us who have believed God, saved by His grace, by His mercy, should engage in good deeds. Why? Because the deeds didn't save us. See how that works? You're not doing the good deeds so that they would save you, but because you recognize the whole rest of the world has the same problem that you and I had. Not a different problem. The same. That, that our good deeds will never make us right. That our good deeds on their own will never be enough to satisfy God. They weren't for my life. They weren't for your life. They won't be for anyone else's life. And so we engage in them not as a way to earn the grace of God, but rather as the result of the saving grace given in Christ Jesus. And so he says, from this, we would be a people who engage in good deeds because God saved us. Now, I think the question then we kind of rest our time with is, what does that look like then? How, how is the encouragement to engage in good deeds played out as Paul's specifically mentioning to Titus? You got to do this. And, and I think he gives categorically a few different things. So let's kind of just bounce through these together. Go back with me to the beginning of chapter uh, or the end of chapter 2. We left this. I, I wanted to, to kind of sweep this in because we left this last week, and I think this is, this is really vital to us. What are the ways that we would engage in good deeds? Well, here's, here's number one. Uh, 
I think that Paul would say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extrapolate this into 2,000 years later language, and then let me give you some justification for that. But I think he would say that we would be good workers. All right, let me, let me show you where I get that. Verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, the, the very nature of, and this is a different conversation for another day, or you can uh, grab some coffee with me and I'd be happy to kind of walk you through some of this, but the very nature of this passage, I think in today's culture 2,000 years later gets uh, a little bristly because anytime we talk about slaves and masters, there's some connotations there uh, that we want to sort of distance ourselves from and reject. The reality was uh, Roman slavery, though it might have been very different from 1800 southern U.S. slavery uh, was not a wonderful thing. It was, it was horrifying. Slaves lacked rights and abilities. Uh, they were, in fact, one out of inside of the Roman Empire, one out of every three people were enslaved. Outside of Rome itself, it was closer to one in five, but even in that, you're talking about 20 to 30 percent of the human population of the known world of that time existed with no rights, they existed with no freedoms. They existed with no abilities of their own. Now, now certainly, it was different. In fact, uh, bond slavery at that time was, was a length of time, and frequently, masters would run kind of the full spectrum of just, righteous, hospitable, and gracious to ruthless, cold, and horrible, right? It's why Jesus so frequently uses that as a point of illustration when he's talking about the way that we might see the Lord and see our submission in discipleship, that he is a good master and you would be a good servant or a good slave or faithful servant, right? It's the same word there, doulos, in, in the Greek, same idea that you would belong to him. And so, so I don't think the Bible's uh, really endorsing or condemning the idea of slavery as a whole here from a legislative standpoint. And we get, like I said, we can discuss that some other day. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. If you're working, if you're a bond slave, or 2,000 years later, you're an employee somewhere, that one of the ways you can represent the gospel is you can engage yourself in good deeds as a good worker. That you wouldn't be pilfering, that you would be showing respect, that you would be working hard. I, I'm convinced that one of the many reasons that Christians have such a negative, uh, growingly negative connotation in the society that we have is because uh, we tend to be lazy bad workers. And so uh, if you're a lazy bad worker and a Christian, uh, or maybe it's not all of them, but uh, what happens is when you identify as somebody who knows Jesus, like instantly, right, there's this kind of microscopic lens placed on your life because they want to know, do you represent the Savior that you say you confess? And so uh, in a workplace, somebody who goes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they're, they're late to work, and they're lazy, and they go, that's not my job, I'm not going to handle that, and they don't want to help someone else, and they're uh, dishonest in the way that they practice things. What's that do for your relationship with Christ? What's that do with the world's perception of a Christian? 
And, and so I think Paul's looking at this and going, hey, I know these people of Crete. In fact, they are always, this is how he describes them in chapter 1, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And it's not wrong. So what would it look like to engage in good deeds? He says, first, you ought to be someone who is a good worker. That in your labor, in your workmanship, you would find yourself creating opportunities to proclaim the gospel because it is respectable to witness the way that you honor and glorify the Lord in how you work. And in case you are tempted to go, well, yeah, except have you met my boss? Right? Dave, don't say anything. Right? Uh, I got this I got this horrible work situation, right? And, and so maybe it's easy. It'd be easy to be a hard worker if you got a good job, like you work at a church or something. But my job is just rough. Well, well here's what Paul said to the church in Colossae. He said that you, again, he's going to slaves first. He says, in all things, you would obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he says it this way, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You go, ah, man, but my boss stinks. Your boss is the Lord. You stop worrying about if you're working for men and you do your work heartily as if it is for the Lord. That if you are someone who recognizes that working for the Lord creates opportunity, it's you engaging in good deeds, watching from that the gospel go forth. Now, keep going. Second thing, he says, not only would you be good workers, but I think he means to say that you would be good citizens. Look at chapter 3, how it begins. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every... <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. I like it. it took just a little too long, but we're close. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Uh, truth is, we, we live in a really unique time. If you, you understand history, uh, the way that the United States is structured as a nation with the liberties, the freedoms, the ability to uh, elect and to uh, endorse or condone and to speak freely about our governing authorities is uh, massively unique throughout history. That, that was not a luxury afforded uh, to most people in all of the history of modern society, it certainly was not the case in Rome who existed under an emperor who was to be worshipped, that Caesar was to be viewed with supreme authority. And so out of this, we ought not find ourselves recognizing that, well, if this knew the government that we existed now, they wouldn't tell us to be good citizens, subject to rulers and authorities. Certainly, Paul didn't have in mind the horror that we see uh, going on in the country now, and, and yet we consider 2,000 years ago, Paul's talking to a people who exist under the harsh, the oppressive, and the swift to judgment, without appeal, lack of Roman 
empire and says that you would be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, again, we, we get coffee someday and talk about like, okay, well, what, what does the exception clause look like? When do we go, oh, I cannot obey that rule? I think there are some times, but, but here's generally what I think is going on here. What Paul's saying is you want to be somebody who finds themselves as capable of witnessing in the world, you better not be breaking the law every day for selfish gain. You, you better not be cheating on your taxes. You better not be getting constant speeding tickets, right? Well, that you would be finding yourself submitting to authorities. That one was free, Reg. I'm just trying to help you out, right? <laughs> Bully pulpit, you know? You can, you can catch me later for it. So, <laughs> shouldn't be taking bribes, right? <laughs> that we would, we would be good citizens. Number three, I think uh, that we would be engaged in good deeds even in our social interactions. Look, look down at how he uh, speaks about this in the way we would interact with others. Start in verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are things that are good and profitable for men. Now, what does it look like then? Verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. Now, here's what Paul's saying. The biggest issues kind of within the spiritual community of his days had to do with observance of the Jewish law and genealogies. And so, uh, in this, Paul's going, hey, don't find yourself as someone who is so argumentative that you would be described as factious. Don't find yourself as someone who, in the context of the society you live in, can't get along so that people would see your good deeds. I, I think here's, here's how this works and plays out for some of us, and and. The truth is, I think there's a lot of us just too cowardly to ever uh, find themselves in this position, but there are a segment of believers who go, I don't care what people think. I will express my opinion or my view on something every time, in every place, in every way, and let it be what it is. And I think, I think Paul's writing here about us. Because <laughs> I got some of that in me. And I think he's saying, hey, Be cautious. Don't find yourself in a controversy that is in its heart foolishness. That you would find yourself understanding how to not engage so much in foolish controversies so that at the time when you need to talk about things that really matter, you have the credibility to do so. Amen? You get what I'm saying here? Um, There's a story. I'm just going to pretend like you've never heard this story because I just want to tell it to you like this, right? There's this little boy who's tending some sheep. You remember this little boy? And, and he gets real bored when he's tending the sheep. And so he figures that one of the ways he can entertain himself is he goes to uh, the area where his dad can hear him. He goes, wolf, 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 right? And his dad comes out and there's no wolf. And he thinks that's funny, right? And then there's, you know, days go by. You with me now? 
I hope you are, right? The days go by, and he cries it again, and he cries it again, and then one day, the wolf shows up. And what happens? Lamb chops. Yeah, and so out of that, right, like we, we catch this lesson. This is, I think this is what Paul's getting at, that, that you might find yourself so engaged in foolish controversies. You might, you might find yourself in such factious discussion that it would override your ability to be persuasive in your deed, in your proclamation of the gospel, in your ability to really honor and love and proclaim Jesus. That what it looks like to live a bold, zealous, and gospel-oriented Christian life certainly that we would boldly, boldly and courageously proclaim the truth of Jesus. But I also think that we would find ourselves as a people who aren't so argumentative, so sucked into foolish controversies that it overrides what's really important. When you argue about every little thing, you ultimately lose your credibility to talk about the big things. Amen? And then there's, there's one last one, and then we'll, we'll finish up. He goes on... Uh, to note some real practical instructions about specific people. Remember, Paul's writing to a guy that he knows, hangs out with, loves. And then uh, he notes this last thing. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. What's he, what's he mean there? I, I think he's saying this, that if we are a church that is engaging in good deeds, that includes a church that would be good givers, that we would be generous. When he's speaking there, he's speaking specifically, engaging in good deeds and being fruitful to meet pressing needs is a recognition of generosity. It's a recognition of giving in a way that sees our possessions as not things to be clung onto or hoarded, but rather if ultimately we find our hope in Jesus that we would hold our possessions freely, recognizing ourselves as stewards of them in order that we might be a people who would come alongside and meet pressing needs, that we would care for one another, that we would care for the world around us, that we would be a people of great generosity, that we would see that as priority engaging in good deeds. And so, so what does it look like? Paul says, okay, ultimately a healthy church is a church that are good workers, that, that we engage in the society that we live in and that we go to work and we work hard so that we might provide opportunities for the glory of God to be proclaimed, for the good news of Jesus to be proclaimed, that we are good citizens, that we recognize that it is a responsibility and opportunity for us in our obedience to proclaim the gospel, that we are good in social interactions, that we interact with others in such a way that elevates the gospel first and foremost, that we are good in our giving, our generosity towards others, that we would see it as a way to elevate the gospel, that all of this, careful to engage in good deeds, is because we were once foolish, we were once disobedient, deceived, enslaved, but the kindness of God, our He saved us. Not on the basis of of deeds, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The church, a healthy church, is one that finds themselves engaged in good and glorious deeds because it rightly understands that you and I were enslaved, deceived, disobedient, foolish, that our deeds were incapable, are incapable of putting you in right standing with God, but that God in his rich mercy gave Christ for us that we might be saved through him. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that every day, more and more, we would be a people, a church body engaged in good deeds, that our our deep desire would be that you continue through the work of your spirit to fashion us into a people that represent you well. A people that are ambassadors of Christ in the community that we exist in, in the place that we live, and the, the ways that we walk and interact in all things that we would be engaged in good deeds. And that uh, in that, you would help us understand you would remind us and convince us again and again and again that our motivation for that is is not to earn anything as if we could give anything to you that you don't already possess, but rather in gratitude to respond in such a way to your great mercy that it would bring joy to you that we exist to serve you because we could not be made righteous through our deeds. And so from that, let us engage in good deeds. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing one more song with us?